One of my favorite TV shows growing up um, was Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, if you're, uh, I like, let me just, as a disclaimer, I love Star Wars more than I like Star Trek, but I'm definitely a Trekkie. And uh, one of the things that I liked in Star Trek is some of the enemies that the Federation would face. And one of my favorite enemies was the Borg. And if you know anything about Star Trek and the Borg, it's some uh, cyborg-type creatures who go from planet to planet. And what they do is they will wipe out a civilization and they will make that civilization a part of their own. They will make them into cyborgs. And they will assimilate them into their um, culture. And there was a tagline that the Borg used. Anybody know it? Resistance is futile, right? And uh, I bet the Jews of this day felt a whole lot like that. That they were encountered by an enemy. And they were just trying to not make waves fly under the radar, fit in as much as possible, and they may have felt a lot like resistance is futile. Um, They were trying to be assimilated into that culture. And so I think we can relate to this in our world today. And When we look at the power and the might of the Persian Empire, we can see why the Jews would want to try to fit in as much as they could. Despair was probably very much a part of that as well. Think about it. They're God's chosen people. Where's God? What is he doing? Why has he allowed all of this stuff to take place? And so many of your countrymen and other places have started to return home. They're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. And here you are in a foreign land. And as we're about to see in a foreign culture that is just disgusting. And um, we're going to see it all unfold and how that looks. And here in the book of Esther, you're not going to find some dramatic events like we will find in Exodus. We're not going to have some heroes that pop up to rescue the people. But we're going to see that God is still at work. And for a nation that is going about business as usual, God is about to step in And as God steps in, he's going to do exactly what he wants to do. So uh, with that said, let's pray and we'll jump in. God, I pray that you speak to us tonight as we look at the book of Esther, if we look at this story. I pray that you would bring clarity to your word. Even in a book where you're not mentioned, we can see your hand at work. So Father, as we live in a culture that sometimes uh, mocks you, We live in a culture where sometimes it would be easier just to fit in. I pray that we would see you at work. I pray that we would join you in that work. And that, God, you would work through us to do your business in this world. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Uh, Here's your big idea for Esther chapter 1. No matter how pagan or how powerful a ruler seems to be, They can never stop the will of God. We need to ask ourselves, how is that going to happen? We're going to take a deep deep look at um, the king. We're going to see him go down a path that will eventually lead to his undoing, will eventually lead to 
his marriage falling apart because we see that God is going to remove uh, a queen named Vashti and he's going to make way for Esther to be the queen uh, of Persia. But also we're going to see Esther be the, the means to how God is going to bring salvation to his people. So, um, so what we want to look at tonight, what do we as God's people do when the world seems to be going crazy? First thing that we need to, do, to know is we cannot love this world or take the powers of this world too seriously. I think that's one of your blanks there. We cannot love this world or take the powers of this world too seriously. Let's start reading Esther 1. Verse 1. Now in the days of... Here's the deal. Landon this morning came in and said, here's how you say this. And so I'm going to struggle with it. So here we go. Say it one time for me. Ahasuerus. Here we go. (laughs) I still wanted to say Ahasuerus. (laughs) Now in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white curtain, uh, cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple and silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of yeah whatever marble mother of pearls and precious stones drinks were served in golden vessels vessels with different kinds and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to his edict uh, to this edict there was There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, (laughs) this king, uh, we're going to see, you've all heard that pride comes before the fall. And this king really likes himself. And we're going to see where, here's your uh, next blank, selfish pride leads to foolishness. The king is in love with one person, and that is himself. Uh, He is incredibly self-centered. This is something that comes very natural to us as humans. We want to take care of ourselves. We want, want to make ourselves look better. And we're going to see that he is going to throw a banquet. And not just throw a banquet, he's going to throw a six-month banquet. And the writer of this book gives great detail to this banquet and what it looks like. Showing off the king's wealth. And he is uh, at a different level. Not only does he think highly of himself, um, 
he also wants everyone else in the kingdom, especially his officials, to think highly of him as well. You know, in our default position in sin, um, we will always do what makes ourselves look good. We will always do what we need to do to protect ourselves and especially protect our own interests. But the Bible asks us to act differently. In Matthew 22, it says this, And he said to him, You shall love your, uh, the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that you are supposed to take everything that you know about love, and you're supposed to direct it towards God and towards others. Nowhere in Scripture will you find it where it says you're supposed to love yourself. Why? Because it comes very natural to us. Um, it's easy. We are commanded by Jesus to take the love that we have for ourselves and redirect it to God and towards others. I think sometimes in America we get a very mixed message about love. You would hear people say that um, you have to love yourself before you can love others. And I say, what a lie. You know why? I can prove it. Let me see the number of hands of those of you who like to hang out with someone who's prideful and think highly of themselves and want to tell you how great they are. How many of you like to hang out with someone like that? See, not even anyone wants to lie in here tonight. It's great. You know, we do like to hang out with people who lift you up, who speak highly of you. The type of people that uh, you feel like a better person when you leave their presence. They go out of their way to speak positively about others. They go out of their way to speak positively about you. You know, I was, I remember one of the very first VBSs that I ever went to as a child. And they said, if you want to have joy, you have to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And that stuck with me. To have true joy, you need to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Uh, Jesus gave us the greatest example of that. It says that in Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself, made himself nothing, becoming obedient even to obedience to death on a cross. The beginning of destruction, not only in your life, but in your home or in the, this home, we're going to see, is pride and selfishness. And sadly, I think it's the cause of destructions of a lot of homes in our culture today, maybe even in our church. You know, I have several couples right now that I'm doing marriage counseling with that I'm going to marry in November. And some of those things that I've been talking to them, to them about is, if you want to succeed in marriage, you have to be selfless. It's not about you. It's about the other person, about putting their needs before your own, about compromising on a whole lot of issues. Things you're like, I'll put my foot down on this one. No, sometimes, guess what? You have to meet in the middle of the road. And you compromise. And you do everything in your power to be selfless. You put their needs above your own. And when that takes place, you're going to see your marriage work. And a lot of people would say, you know, selfish, selflessness isn't an issue. It's communication. Or maybe it's money. 
or maybe it's addictions, or maybe it's the in-laws. Maybe that's what you can't deal with in, in, the, uh, in the marriage. But I think you can always trace any of those issues back to pride, to selfish pride. Um, we love ourselves uh, more than we love God, more than we love other people. And when we do that, when we see this king put himself first, we're going to see that it takes him down a road that he doesn't like. So selfish pride is going to be the start of the undoing of this family. Secondly, uh, his drunkenness leads to foolishness. Let's continue reading in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bictha, Ab. Uh, Bakfa, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Great way to be described in the Bible, right? She was lovely to look at. The king likes to drink. Um, this isn't the only occasion that we're going to see in this book that the king likes to drink. And uh, some scholars believe that he had called this party together because this was a war council meeting. He and his buddies were having a war council meeting. They were preparing to attack the nation of Greece. Some of you may know of some of the battles between Xerxes and the Greeks. That's probably what this war council meeting was about. And he wants to show off his bride. He wants to show off his wife to his buddies. Some commentators believe and stated that um, they believe that the king wanted her to come in her royal crown and in nothing else. Um, whatever the case may be, um, what he is asking of his wife is inappropriate. And she is going to... Um, we're going to see how she responds in just a, in just a moment. But uh, regardless of whether he was a king or not a king, he should have known better, right? But this drunkenness party, part of him is taking over and he's making some very bad decisions. And we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 2 that this will eventually lead to some bad decisions even uh, the next day. I don't ever think that I've ever met a person who's ever said, that went out and got hammered, and then the next day they woke up and said, man, I'm really happy about the decisions I made last night. I'm really happy about uh, how I feel right now. I'm really happy about what I did. I've, I've never met anyone that said those things. And we need to understand, and this is just a side point, that the primary beverage in the Old Testament is wine. Um, Paul even told Timothy to take a little wine to settle his stomach. And I don't think... They had a whole lot of pure drinking sources back in biblical days. And so we have many options of what we can drink today. A whole lot more options than they did back then. But wine was very safe back then. And let me just say this. Wine in and of itself isn't evil. We understand that scripture does not very clearly say that you should or should not and make a mandate to not drink. But let me just say this. Drinking leads to drunkenness. And so 
this isn't somewhere that I want to camp tonight. This is not what this lesson is about, but it has to be stated because the king is going to make some foolish decisions in his drunkenness. But I want to say this, especially to those of you who have children, be very careful of the example that you're setting for your children if you do drink. Um, Because you may know the boundary between drinking and drunkenness, but I promise you, your children do not. And so just be careful as you set an example. You won't find many times in the Bible where drinking does not lead to sin. Uh, So be careful in that because I do think it was a contributing factor in the destruction of this home. So he's filled with pride. He was quick to the drink. Next, we're going to see that his uncontrolled anger leads to foolishness. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Imagine the scene. You are sitting around with your buddies. You're having a grand old party. Everyone's there. You're there with your war council buddies. You ask for your eunuchs to call for your wife. She says no. You can just imagine how his buddies were like, they just open their eyes real big and look at you like, really? You want to take that? You're the king. There are two kinds of anger. There's legitimate anger and there's illegitimate anger. Paul tells us to be angry and not sin. Jesus, when he was clearing out the temple, um, was angry, but neither of them sinned. We see anger towards sin, and uh, when we see anger towards sin and anger towards uh, things that are unjust in this world, we look at that and we say, well, that's right to be angry about those types of things. But there is illegitimate anger where... um, When it's exposed in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, are we controlling this anger or is this anger controlling us? Um, The king is very humiliated and he's very angry. And in his anger, he's not going to ask how he can reconcile the situation. He's going to act in his anger and he's going to make some decisions. That, As you'll see, look at Esther chapter 2 verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. You know, anger always subsides. Um, The king is going to remember what he did, what he's going to do to the queen. He isn't remembering his drunken party He isn't remembering the embarrassment of the queen not asking, not doing what he asked her to do. He's remembering her. And he's remembering how he felt about her. And I'm pretty sure he's looking at this situation going, man, this was really dumb. I really messed up a good thing. Anger does that. For the most part, sin does that. Sin does that. It messes up things that we enjoy things in our life that, that are good. And when we make those decisions in anger, they affect our whole life. We've been talking about a lot of these sins on Sunday mornings. We've been going through uh, a series called Deadly. 
And as we look at these different sins and they affect our lives, they change things in our life, they cause regret in our life. Um, Uncontrolled anger will destroy your life. Think about Cain and Abel. Cain is going to get mad because God accepts his brother's offering and does not accept his. And God's even going to come to him and he's going to say, why are you so angry? Do you not realize sin is crouching at your door, waiting to devour you? He kills his brother. And guess what? It follows him the rest of his life. Think about Moses, Exodus chapter 20, and his anger towards the people, towards God's people. God tells him, speak to the rock to bring forth water. In his anger, he strikes the rock. Now, he had done it that way before, but that's not what God told him to do. And in his anger, he strikes the rock. Did he have consequences? Yes. He didn't get to go into the promised land. Because of his anger, something that God takes very seriously. John chapter 12. The disciples and Jesus are eating in Bethany. And we see Mary uh, will take an alabaster jar and will begin to wash Jesus' feet with it. And Judas does not like it. Do you realize we could have sold that and we could have fed a lot of orphans with that money? What are you doing? Judas gets called out in front of everybody. And Judas does not like it. And Judas is going to become angry. So angry that he's going to turn Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. Does he regret that decision? Yes, he tries to give the money back. It's too late. And he will end up taking his own life because of the regret that he felt, that he, the decisions that he made out of his anger. Uncontrolled anger will destroy your life. When it comes up in your life, 99 times out of 100, it's going to end up hurting you. I would probably say 100 out of 100. It's going to hurt you more than the people that you're trying to hurt. James 1, 19 and 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We have to realize that if we want God to work in our life, if we want the righteousness of God to flow through us, there cannot be any room for anger. It would be like having oil and water and trying to make them work together. They don't work together. The righteousness of God and anger, they don't go together. You can't operate that way. Some people may lie to themselves and say, I just can't control it. I'm just going to tell you that if you belong to Jesus, if Jesus is living inside of you, if you are a Christ follower, then you are no longer under the bondage of that sin. You have the power to overcome it. You have the power to. You have the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to God. When we do uh, mess up, I mean, do we mess up? Yes. Are we perfect in that? No. But that's not where we operate. You cannot have uncontrolled anger as a daily part of your life and call yourself a Christ follower. That, those two things just can't go together. So we see selfish pride, drunkenness, anger. And lastly, the king is going to listen. He's listening to bad advice will lead to foolishness. He's going to take some really, 
really bad advice. Let's continue reading verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Kershina, Shethar, uh, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first, uh, and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus uh, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said, to, uh, said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard the queen's behavior, will say, to the, sa- will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let the royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin uh, proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The king is going to get some terrible advice from his quote-unquote advisors. And not just bad advice, but some bad advice from some guys who were pretty selfish themselves. Um, they could care less about the king and the queen. Uh, they only cared for themselves. They were only worried about what their wives were going to do to them when they got home, if they heard this story. So they were not going to inform the king on what he needed to hear but they were going to inform the king on what he wanted to hear. He needed to hear, man, just calm down, sober up, think on it, sleep on it. Uh, Then you can make a decision once you've cooled off a little bit. You do not need to make any rash decisions right now. But that's not what they're going to tell him. They're going to tell him what he wants to hear. And he is going to dig himself into a pretty big whole. Uh, We all need godly advice in our lives. And to get godly advice in our lives, you have to surround yourself with godly people. People who love Jesus and who act like Jesus. And you're thinking, well, how, how do I find those types of people to surround myself with them? They're pretty easy to find. They're people who study God's word and they do exactly what God's word tells them to do. 
I'm not saying they're perfect by any means, but you know a Christ follower when you see them. Um, Someone who cares more about the glory of God than they do about your happiness. I tell you, you can find lots of people who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. But exactly what we want to hear may be bad advice. We need to have somebody in our life that will be more concerned with the glory of God than with our happiness. Someone who's not going to sugarcoat it. Someone who doesn't even care. They don't care if they make us mad. That's the type of people we need to put in our lives to give us advice on uh, issues that happen in our life. You want good advice? That's the type of people that you should surround yourself with. So we see a self-centered king. He likes to drink. He's angry. He takes bad advice. Uh, we got a big old mess right here in Esther chapter 1. And so, with that said, even in this big old mess, we're going to see that God is still at work, even in the midst of it. Uh, I have thought about Esther and Mordecai as I studied this, uh, this chapter. What it must have been for them, they could have been two of the very people who were serving at this grand six-month feast. Day after day, seeing just uh, sin after sin and this culture and what they do and probably being made fun of. And so they would look at this situation and go, where is God? Where is God in all of this? What is going on? And And the thing is, he's there. He knows exactly what he's doing. He hasn't left his throne. None of this is catching him by surprise. It's all a part of his plan. It's all a part of his plan to take one queen off of her throne and put another queen in in her place. This should bring us a lot of comfort. Even in the middle of a pandemic, um, we don't know if our kids will be in school next week, whether they're going to be homeschooled. We don't know if who's going to win the election. All of these things going on. You're just like, this world is going crazy. I don't know what's going to happen. Even in our sin. We may look at this and say, I just don't know what's happening in this world. We can rest in the fact that God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's going on. It's not catching him by surprise. And even today, he's working all things out for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. He's he's unmovable. You can't change his plans. He's always faithful. The issue has never been about his faithfulness. It's always been about ours. And when we align our lives with his, uh, we get to be a part of what he's doing to save the world through his son, Jesus. So how do we respond? When the world is going crazy, how do we respond? Here's a fill in the blank. We should patiently wait to see what God is doing. We should wait and see what God is doing. Here's what Landon Dowden says. He says, what probably seemed very insignificant for the Jews, a pagan party, a marital fight between two Persian royals, and a a decision to replace the queen actually had a lot of significance for God's people. Before they were even aware there was a problem, God's providence is already at work. Before they even realize there's an issue, Before they even realize that a little bit down the road, their people are going to be um, about to be hunted down. God's already at work to take care of the problem. He does that in our lives as well. 
Uh, God will use Ahasuerus, uh, his wretchedness, and Vashti's rebellion to bring about Esther's reign. God will use the king's wretchedness and Vashti's rebellion to bring about Esther's reign. Esther and Mordecai, I love how Esther and Mordecai haven't even been mentioned. And God is already at work behind the scenes to prepare the way for Esther's reign. Um, What do we need to take away from the scripture tonight? Here's what I want us to take away. Um, Here's your last blank. Without God, without God's work in our lives, we are all like King Ahasuerus. We can all look at the king. We can all shake our heads. We can all think what a fool he has been, how wicked he is, how cruel he is. Why would anyone treat his wife this way? But I just want to remind us of our state before God took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Think about the situation that we were in before the Holy Spirit changed our hearts so that we could say yes to God. Romans 6.19 says that we should be a slave to righteousness. And that righteousness, being a slave to righteousness, brings about sanctification. And even in our sanctification, sin that we do not put to death in our life will grow. You cannot feed your flesh and feed your faith at the same time. Every time we choose to feed our faith, it's a great picture of... uh, evidence that God is working in our lives. When we choose to feed our faith rather than our flesh, when we choose not to live in anger and drunkenness, and we choose to feed our faith, that's when we see evidence of what God is doing in our life. Like the king, we are tempted to use people uh, to make us look good for our own gain without any thought of their good, but only through a relationship with Jesus can we see the value of other people And through Christ, we seek to serve other people rather than uh, only being served.